Television has created a people who believe instantly in dramatic fantasies, who can be controlled by tiny dots of light. Oh. Mm. Oh. <laughs> so I'm high as fuck. And probably out in London at the Royal watching practices for Pa they does. I'm still high as fuck. And diving in the pious, starting riots, let the fire snuff lungs, mellow clouds in the lighter. I spark it. Got homies that have seen more lines than a hyper dunk. Get it? I'm on time for the rising. And if I'm online, better dime that I'm writing while the plot's thickening. Liquor shots quickening. Hopscotch into the drop docks with a million. Suckers for gut sizzle, reluctant to plug fiddles. Sticks, little dick niggas erupting for Dutch brittles Clean as the villain is venomous Rekindling, chilling with the clutch Take a puff, let the Dutch kiss him But he the Dutch man, black Darth Vader shit Hey, welcome back everyone to another episode of Decode I'm joined with co-host Young Agamben Hey everyone And we're just gonna jump into some neat work uh, Works, I should say We might go, might go on a tangent here and there But we're Bringing up uh, Paul Virilio's uh, strategy. Uh, I'm, I'm getting the title. I already forgot the title. Uh, strategy <laughs> of deception. Deception. Uh, I. You know, it's funny because I thought when I got the PDF, I downloaded <laughs> what is it? What is his most famous one? Speed and politics. Speed and politics. Yeah, I downloaded that one. Um, but we're gonna jump into it's a good book. Uh, strategy of deception and. Yeah, I don't, I, do you want to just open up with our impressions of Paul Virilio in, in general or in, kind of then jump into the book? Or, uh, Paul, Paul Virilio is so interesting to us. He's very much uh, a little bit outside of what we would normally study. Uh, Hugh and I were talking about the, the interesting approach he has to philosophy and geopolitics in that he is a theorist. He's very much a, a media theorist and a critical theorist, cultural theorist. Those are things that you can definitely call him, but his approach is more eccentric than most. It's mostly a combination of uh, military history and strategy, military theory, I should say, with architecture and uh, uh, an almost, you know, I don't, I don't know how you could describe this. I'm trying to think of the best term for it, but it's, it's a very precise materialism, I, I would call it. He's, he's looking at the nitty gritty details of how power is maintained and how it's won and lost within the sort of geopolitical world we find ourselves in now. And Virilio, for this book, is writing about the Balkans in the 90s, um, which if, if you uh, were not alive then, or if you don't have, you know, a, a Balkan history, this is, you know, kind of a return of what they called in World War I, the Balkan powder keg, where you have all these ethnicities sort of stuck together on country lines that were mostly arbitrarily drawn by the decolonization and sort of recolonization by the Soviet Union of that area. And so the Balkans were suffering from a series of skirmishes and then full-on wars that can be categorized mainly as uh, Serbia trying to uh, assert itself as a global empire, which it failed to do eventually, but also a ethnic, uh, they call it ethnic cleansing, 
but that, you know, again, this is, this is a very Western term for what's going on. Me as a Croatian, I also called ethnic cleansing because that was my people and my family at the time. But, you know, we were going back and forth in the Balkan region between Bosnians, Kosovoians, Muslims, Christians, and then Serbians who had maintained that region for 30, 40 years, almost as a what Tito wanted an autonomous Yugoslavia, meaning he wanted to fight Russia too, if they came for it, which that was sort of the, the uh, tragic fall of an empire to a lot of especially Marxist Leninists who considered that sort of a, a great hope for a non-bipolar empire that would not have to subscribe to those values. So Virilio is, is talking about this time specifically in the book, but it's important to understand that Virilio is writing this book after some of his major works, such as Speed and Politics, in which he's also talking about military power and hegemony and how that functions. It's just that that book looks at these problems on a more theoretical level, whereas this is, this is very much a social criticism or a social analysis of a real world event and how the military strategies and ideas of the global powers at play here are creating the world that we're in now. Yeah, I think um, the word that I'd use to describe it would for Virilio's writing is kind of like a, a phenomenology of like logistics um, because he really, like you've mentioned, he does go into the nitty gritty and at times it can be uh, kind of dry or maybe like over technical, maybe a little bit boring. Yes. Um, but it's not, it, it, it almost reads very, I mean, obviously I'm going to use the word here, accelerationist, but he writes in a very concise, like packed, it almost reminded me of uh, a little bit of Leotard's writing or maybe even like Nick Land, uh, where mm -hmm. sometimes you'll, you'll see like a little sentence or paragraph and there's so much to unpack just within, you know, like three sentences. Um and so I really like that aspect of Virilio. Um, and I think just to tie it to the point that you mentioned about, you know, this, um, you know, this Eastern, like Eurasian um, politics or this, you know, this, this turn of geo, geo, geopolitics in, in the wake of um, the fall of, you know, uh, Soviet Russia. Um, I think it's, would be nice to just point out that first quote that's in like the the opening, which is the mm -hmm. quote by the secretary secretary general of NATO, Paul Henry Spack, and it reads: "The Atlantic Alliance is perhaps in the end more a bastard child of communists than a child born because we wanted it." And I think that kind of encapsulates the not just like the you know it's kind of like that whole Fukuyamian um, thesis, which is um, you know, the end of history with the rise of neoliberalism. But it's also this, this uh, what Dukin calls this Atlanteanism that kind of is this world hegemon, um, which, you know, Borrelia does kind of almost lay, lays out, in a, in a way, he's more of a metaphysician of war and of yes. uh, communication theory um, than he would be, I, I would say, like he, you, like you mentioned, he's a very, very heterodoxical thinker, but in, in, a, in a weird, in a, 
in a very like Deleuzian sense. Like he's writing a particular uh, line of flight or plateau. Like he's like he's mm-hmm. he, you know he's he's going into all these different areas, to- topics, geopolitics, economics, uh, communication theory. But it's it's coming from like a very um, like it, it reminds me a lot of like obviously like his influence in regards to Baudrillard's work. It, it's very Baudrillardian in a sense. Um, but instead yes. of like affirmative, I would say, uh, like Baudrillard, um, Borrelio's work is a bit more, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to say pessimistic, but it's more uh, cynical in terms of, you know, where, where this is taking us, where this, you know, like in his book, uh, Speed and Politics, where this, this, uh, this, acceleration uh in modernist times where that's taking us uh, you know i think Borrelio has a very almost negative view of um of this speed yeah i think that's really well put especially what you said about him being you know sort of a uh metaphysician of war and that really fits in well with what he's trying to do here in this almost metaphysical appraisal of where the world is but I want to continue for a second because um, I think this is really interesting and in talking about, you know, his accelerationism. And I, I want to uh, urge our listeners that if you, which I'm sure many of you are, who have some tangential interest in accelerationism, I urge you to read Virilio because he is a true accelerationist in the sense that it's not accelerationism with this sort of bullshit eschatology and mystification of what's accelerating, what's it means, and you know, some strange political program to go along with it. This is the study of accelerationism stripped down to its centrifugal core of speed. He's thinking about speed. And so in speed and politics, the thesis is that hegemony is spawned from the control and acceleration of speed. And for him, speed means the ability to technologically, you know, move and to engage in total war. So for for, for him, the invention of sea power, the invention of the steam engine, the invention of nuclear energy, these are the major absolute events in the history of the world because they are events that drive dialectically the acceleration of our military situation. And that's a big point that he gets into this book of why NATO's sort of plan, he argues, is failing. And we can get into this this now. I think it's good to to talk about that. What he calls uh, the sort of NATO plan. First of all, he calls it telematic war. You know, and you can kind of assume a little bit of what he means here. But it is a very complicated topic. But the first part of this telematic warfare is I love how he says that NATO and the United States is working on this, and I'll quote this, the technical illusionism of the United States. And what he means by this is this increasing military phenomenon of creating more and more intelligent and quote unquote precise weapons, such as precision airstrikes, drone strikes, cruise missiles, you know, the un the onflux, influx, I should say, and proliferation of these technologies are the material foundation of how we get to or why we have gotten to where we are in the world today. And the technical illusionism is this idea that these things are smarter, they're better, and they're making less collateral damage. 
But he goes on to say that even NATO and the United States have to constantly say, oh, look, we screwed up. We accidentally, you know, carpet bombed 75 people in Pakistan, you know, and ended up causing even more collateral damage. So there's this myth, mystification and myth of smart, precise warfare that's causing the United States to continually put all of its eggs in this basket, which creates then a strategic response from every other country. Yeah, uh, I want to touch up on your very concise um, reading of really as he's a true accelerationist thinker and that he really does strip down a politics of speed because uh, I think you're you're very on the nose when you say that there's this cartoony accelerationism that's very popular where it's kind of like, no, uh, things go fast and transhumanism and, you know, this kind of like cyberpunkian uh, aestheticization, very neoliberal, like hyper neoliberal sense of the term accelerationism. Um, but like you mentioned, Parver really is very sober when he when it when it comes to actually like taking that speed to task. And um, in terms of, you know, what what he finds as like the true motor of history he's very he's he even like just says it it's it's about the development of uh weapons in terms of the war itself so the development of weapons within war to mobilize troops um is the actual motor of history it's what actually pushes things forward and i i don't know if it's in this one i think it's in his the um essay open sky i don't know if you had a chance to to take yes um yes where he directly quotes and i'm I'm gonna lose the quote here um he directly states that stasis is um death and so in a way he's more of a cyberneticist but not like in in like a corny um like positive feedback uh, negative feedback or anything like that what he's what he's saying is that the ability or the the lack of ability to mobilize to to be able to to actually, you know, strike in a way to actually mobilize troops or to mobilize warfare is what causes, for example, like a state to fail or, um, right. Um, and it's, and it's, you know, it's this, this notion of like stasis and at least in biology, it's the, the notion that, you know, you reach homeostasis and that's how something stays alive. And that's true. But Virilio is saying that, um, these negative, you know, this, when, an, when an organism, for example, has to overcome a challenge, that's when it actually tests its vitalism. That's how it develops. That's how it grows and stays alive. And so for something um, kind of, I wouldn't say quite necessarily like uh, the Soviet Union, which it reaches some sort of homeostatic um, position, that leads to it to collapse under its own weight, in a sense. It doesn't can't adapt. Um, and then he even goes and affirms, um, I think it's in Speed and Politics, he has a chapter about the, about bodies, I forgot what it's titled. Um, let me see if I can pull it up real quick. Um, unable, unable Bodies, where he affirms Maoism, how it incorporates, um, you know, capitalism, it, it doesn't, Maoism, or at least, um, you know, the, the post-capitalist industrialized China, how it kind of incorporates the, the logic of neoliberalist capitalism to flourish. So it doesn't 
doesn't just stay there and it realizes in a way that it has to connect itself to the world markets, to the United States world power for it to be able to um, even compete with it or just to be able to uh, subsist. Right. And it sort of speaks to what uh, Virilio talks about often in this, where uh, Maoism is sort of a Virilio's kind of ideal form of insurrection, because if you read Speed and Politics, a lot of the history of warfare and the history of the city is comes from a siege of the interior of the city of where the money and the grain is stored by sort of the rural moving bands of nomadic uh, insurgents. And so there's a speed quality to Maoism that makes it a very effective social technology. But you see the United States begin to study it and understand it not as an ideology, but as a social technology. The CIA did many, many interesting, interesting studies to basically perfect Maoism as a form of insurgency for itself. And what you get here is that uh, there's there's no longer a uh, uh, a need for sort of warfare to be as natural as it once was. He talks about how where warfare is heading is the uh, idea of programming warfare and of programming the way that we fight, right? Of, you know, destroying bridges. He brings up Bill Gates, you know, saying, oh, this is great that we destroyed these bridges in the Balkans using this computer virus. And, you know, there was the promised software breach that uh, stopped the Iranians from building a nuclear weapon. These are all new proliferated technologies that allow countries to use speed and to stop other countries from being able to accelerate their own technological speed, right? The problem is, is this is accelerating something that we don't quite understand yet, which I, I like how he describes it, where he calls it the accelerating towards what he calls a cybernetic accident. And we can already see this happening because we need to keep fighting each other and, you know, basically arms racing with these new technologies. We're opening ourselves up to the possibility of greater and greater cybernetic accidents where something feeds back in that is extremely dangerous. For instance, he brings up bacteriological or bacteria warfare. You know, in Ukraine right now, there's a big, big problem where, you know, we have chemical weapons bases with major bacteria that could do serious damage to the world that is now kind of up for grabs between the Ukrainians and the Russians as much as we don't want to admit it. But we have this problem where, you know, in order to try and create new forms of interstate deterrence, we're creating things that are increasingly dangerous, increasingly not able to be controlled. You know, we have power grids being able to to go offline, we have, you know, uh, the internet, we have all of these things that open up and, and allow for a greater proliferation of disorder and chaos, all because of this, this idea of the technical illusion, getting a technical edge, a, an edge of speed, power and technology over our enemies, maintaining that, which will never end. And I think, really uh, makes a good point to kind of reframe history and reframe geopolitical history as 
a continuation of the old myth of Lebensraum. And obviously Lebensraum, if you, you know, studied World War II history, is sort of the term that we use to describe the ideology that drove the Germans, especially to go into the Rhineland, go into Poland, because in the German mythological imagination, we needed, they needed this land in order to complete Germany, in order for Germany to be what it needs to be. And we tend to think that that sort of Lebensraum is gone. But I think what, what Berlio brings up, first of all, that's interesting is that Lebensraum continues vertically. This is the idea of the open sky. This is a new frontier, an accelerating frontier of military history, right? Of military might all the way into space. It's not that Lebensraum is gone. It's, I would call it a neo-Lebensraum. But we'll speak to this later, but this becomes complicated then in the sort of East versus West battle that's going on right now, where Russia is engaging in a very, a very old school form of Lebensraum of we have these Russian speaking people, we have this former part of the empire, and in order to be the Russian empire we want to be, we need to reintegrate this. If you read Dugan's sort of Russian manifest destiny, this is his idea of the Russian empire as going back and getting what was once theirs, right? So for America, this doesn't really make sense to us because we we tend to uh, kid ourselves that Lebensraum is no longer a thing, even though we do Lebensraum by what he calls the silent procedure or the silence procedure, which means that you're basically agreeing with your allies tacitly and implicitly that you're allowed to do this and you can do this. So, you know, the that would go for say the invasion of Kuwait and to get our oil back, you know, and the maintenance of Afghanistan to keep the poppy fields. These are technically Lebensraum, right? We consider these poppy fields, these oil fields as the necessary continuation of our empire for its survival. And not only that, but we consider the open sky to be the necessary frontier of American exceptionalism. And so what we get is a re-analysis of history that better understands the, the strategy and tactical framework that the major countries are working under without all of the self-deceit and mystification of what's going on here, which we'll get into later about how the U.S. sees itself and how it justifies itself. But I think this point of uh, the real material conditions of geopolitics is important so that we can't keep getting sucked into one propaganda piece over the other for why someone's doing something, why Russia invaded, why we have to invade. These are not so important as the material impulses and incentives that we've set up that drive the what he calls the programmed automata of the modern geopolitical decision-making system. Yeah, I want to bring up that notion of you touched on it um, in terms of like air supremacy, for example, um, where I think Verlio has like that quote here. Let me see if I can pull it up. So the nations which wish to preserve their strategic autonomy and their political sovereignty have no other option than to maintain their nuclear arsenals, develop missiles, and attempt to improve their military capacities. The latter aim being long-term and expensive the cheapest way in the meantime before strategic parity is achieved is to con concentrate on missile development. 
It is to anticipate this logic that the United States decided to develop an anti-missile defense and to prevent the acquisition of those technologies by other countries. And you can see this like super clearly with, you know, obviously the whole notion of NATO, which is essentially just a way that the United States can police other countries from being able to develop this autonomy uh, by mm-hmm. developing their own nuclear armament. And uh, th- there's a there's a secondary part to this quote later on in that in that same um chapter where uh, he talks about how um, uh, Duhet's theory that air forces could win a war without support from land forces was not to receive right. confirmation until Hiroshima when a single B-29 bomber and a single atom bomb put an end to the war in the Pacific. Um, and that, I mean, that just really completely narrows it down. It's like, what has the United mm-hmm. States dominantly done to, you know, the Middle East or to just... Um, to the oriental east um and russia it's just sanctioning this ability to develop the technologies for by which they can maintain bipolarity or right exactly exactly yeah that's a that's a really good quote you brought up i i wrote that down too because it, it's really powerful um the way he lays it out of you know, I like how he calls this open sky or air superiority concept. When it first came out, it, it came from uh, an Italian futurist, basically, a uh, 1930s concept that was not considered, it was considered an, literally an airy idea, an idea that didn't have any real basis in reality just because of the current air technology. And then, like you said, when 45 hits and Hiroshima happens is when the Confirm the real world confirmation of this military idea comes to fruition. And post World War II, all that we're competing for primarily is that that air supremacy, or you know what they call the the floating the floating city, the flying nation. The idea that you can basically carry hegemony across the world from the air is a concept that originates in the 30s, but that we can see it strains all the way through to today, you know, especially with the uh, the U.S. going primarily with uh, precision drone strikes from the air as a method for fighting, especially the global war on terror. And you also get sort of the Virilio is right and uh, what he said about the misfires, the misbombings of the 90s is true to this day where, you know, they hid for a long time the fact that we were bombing weddings and basically that this idea of collateral damage was uh, a lie. You know, it's an illusion. You know, one out of uh, there's nine people who die for every target that gets, uh, you know, a Hellfire missile sent down. That's that's not a very good collateral damage rate at all. And yet it's the basis for justifying and for a smart war going forward, which, which is, is sort of the hypocrisy of the, of the situation. Yeah. And I think, um, and we'll definitely touch up on this. It's this, like you mentioned, this domination of the sky and we're seeing, you know, even now with rapid advancements in the telecommunications technology, how it's slowly going from tangible, physical, uh, and I I don't want to say that these two things are distinct, but uh, like actual fighting, for example, like actual bombings and technologies, aircraft, to 
the you know the importance of cyber security uh cyber tactics and satellite technology that i think um you know it's that's where that's where uh you know that's where history is going that's where um that is where the next frontier in terms of uh aerial domination um is going yeah exactly the and with that the scary part that Verlio brings up which is very poetic is with the acceleration of the aerospatial sort of warfare and attempt to claim that territory you inevitably through the proliferation and acceleration of these weapons get the acceleration towards what he calls the absolute weapon you know which might be nuclear warfare but I, that makes me think of you know in gravity's rainbow uh the Germans and everyone are looking for weapon zero, 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 the absolute weapon, which is basically just a very loud thing of light that destroys the world, right? And the idea is that if your entire strategy is to basically beat your enemy and coming up with better weapons, the framework for developing weapons is always going to accelerate towards the most absolute weapon. And so we have this race towards absolute weapons that the United States is currently in the lead for, but then NATO acts as the sort of uh, uh, the weight to slow down the speed of other countries in, in developing those types of weapons or any absolute weapon. Right now, we consider the absolute weapon to be nuclear warfare, but with the sort of breakdown in the effectiveness of a nuclear arsenal, although it's still effective for you know a Middle Eastern country who needs deterrence, but in the future, there will be a new absolute weapon. And I like this concept of an absolute weapon because it, it shows the true trajectory of the military industrial complex. And it shows that everything will go towards justifying two things, that total war is necessary and that an absolute weapon is necessary. And I think that's a very important thing to keep in mind when you're thinking of military action and military strategy. Yeah, this, uh, I think the the point that you brought about gravity's rainbow is really important because um it reminds me of this notion and i think people kind of get this like cartoony version of fascism uh where it's like you know hitler nationalism blah 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 and yes that's true to to the extent that you know the the whole deleuze and guattari are really specific about this so the whole notion of fascism is that it's this country's almost death drive to annihilate or to destroy everything and with arms races particularly um you know the development of these weapons to for not for their own sake or for the sake of peace or deterrent deterrent sorry um but it's for the sake of annihilation so it's right it's um and it's and it's almost like the annihilation of what it's the annihilation of the other but in a way the the the, the annihilation of itself complete and utter annihilation um, of everything and, and you know that's in a way that's the you know that's the that's the hegelian motor of history it's it's uh, mm-hmm. you know absolute history or absolute geist which is um in a way i would i want to say that you know hegelian geist is fascism but th- that there is this kind of t- teleological endpoint of the the um the appropriation of you know the the the, the war machine by right. fascist regimes um it's it's clearly it's it's purely in and of itself for the destruction or for the, the for the plugging into the death drive essentially and, and annihilating mm-hmm. 
everything in its path. Exactly. And it goes back to the uh, quote that you read from the Indian minister uh, talking about the need to counter the United States anti-missile force, where the idea that really points out is, is, you know, in the need for order and competition with other countries, we accelerate disorder by creating more and more dangerous weapons and destroying the state from the inside because you're spending all of that money on creating the most advanced military technology out of this this fear and need for order that you're really creating the destruction of your country and other countries. Um, I really want to talk about too, you know, this point that he makes where uh, he says that politicians are basically on the outs and that you can't, politicians are not useful in geopolitics. In fact, he calls it the infantilization of politicians at the end of the century. He brings up Monica Gate, <laughs> the Lewinsky scandal, but he also uh, poetically writes of these politicians as in their playpen, wanting to use more and more bigger toys and make bigger toys that they can use. And his idea of politicians as children, as infantilized children, I think is, is very precocious towards what politicians will become in the future. But it's important that the engineer usurps the pol politician in power, right? And so there's two major points I want to make about this. First, within the book, I think he makes a great point to say, look at how the world is getting run. You can't trust politicians. So basically, the powers are completely uh, owned and competing with each other through the intelligence machine, right? You have Bush Sr., who is the biggest, you know, longest running CIA director and CIA agent of all time, kind of running the show over here. And you have Khrushchev and Putin, the longest running KGB agents, running them because you can't trust politicians with these long-term necessary strategies. And so he brings up the point that intelligence becomes increasingly important. And he would be amazed uh, to see what happened to intelligence agencies after the information bomb, as he says, he wrote a book called The Information Bomb, and he talks here about the need to control and manipulate information. The intelligence world now has, you know, 10 to 15 more intelligence uh, services that are all based on information and technology, reading, reading emails, running through GPS technology. He predicts what will become the 21st century's major uh fight this information fight between the intelligence services but when it comes to the engineer and the importance of the engineer i think this can't be overstated and i want to bring up one of my favorite books a very touching book by giorgio agamben um short little book it's called what is real and it's actually a slight biography of an austrian scientist uh who was probably the smartest nuclear physicist of his entire generation and he developed a a lot of the theory that would have made the atom bomb earlier. And then the Nazis came looking for him to basically use his engineering talent to build their atomic bomb, which he very well could have done. And Agamben writes about how this man basically did what is the only thing that is truly, uh, you know, resistance is truly a, a real resistance against this military regime across the world. He just disappeared. He disappeared to Argentina and no one ever found him because he knew that if he was found, they would use his ideas. They would create that bomb faster than anyone else could. 
And his decision to do that probably changed the course of human history. And it's one engineer. But I think it speaks to what Virilio is talking about here, where the engineering intelligence power is usurping not only the power of the politicians, but even to a certain extent, the military, as military becomes increasingly a cybernetic battlefield. Yeah, I think um, this really ties to that. A lot. Say what you will about people like this, but it ties into a lot of the stuff that um, Combot, you know, <laughs> has been, you know, speaking about in terms of the importance of intelligence agencies, um, which is that across the board, they they tend to really run um, or hold the most power within a particular government. And I think right. there's an importance in an absolutist or, or neo-absolutist thinking nowadays. Um, say what you will about them. Um, I'm not going to, you know, advocate in their place for them. But um, it's at least they're very concise when it comes to the formalize or understanding the formalization of power, which is that, you know, it's, you have... Really, kind of writes about this, but it's in, it's in regards to uh, FDR or even Hitler, how they had to acquire a a unprecedented amount of both technological um, centralization or technological development. For example, you know the 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 hyper industrialization post World War One of um, Germany and and the development of uh, essentially weapons of war. And then with FDR, the, you know, it's like the, the overarching or the, the power that the state was able to command at a time where they were able to mobilize entire sectors of the economy to actually build or to, mo- to mobilize, you know, essentially through the, through the New Deal to actually be a competitive force against, um, against the Axis powers in, in World War Two, And you know, it's, it's that sober uh, analysis that that I like about Borrelio, where he, he gets into the nitty-gritty, um, the the logistics, essentially, how how these powers come about to, to, to generate, you know, technology to actually accelerate and progress to have world dominion. And you can, you can see what you mentioned, which is the infantilization of the, you know, the populist figure, you know, someone like Joe Biden, which more and more, or even Trump, you could say they were really just puppets of, or they were just these mouthpieces for these positions that don't really mean anything anymore. You know, the things that are actually running government are the, these intelligence, um, these uh, governmental intelligence agencies and the private sector uh, through through you know um, contract work through the through the for example the NSA and technologies companies and social media, uh, yeah, you see a real a real development in that in that area and you can see how you know the growing formal way to actually infiltrate a government is through through the hacking of um, like cybernetic mimesis, right. Yeah, I think that's very true. I think it's important what you're saying, that it's it's important to understand the machinations of global power and not just the ideologies and the propaganda that comes out of it. And when we think about intelligence agencies, like you said, it's it's important to understand that intelligence agencies are the ones running the show and they are not really part of the government. They operate almost separately and privately 
And we have to also understand, especially with the CIA, that the CIA started from, you know, Sullivan and Cromwell, a major uh, law firm for the major corporations. Basically, the CIA started to help these corporations, you know, overthrow local regimes or help them in foreign countries for their business. And it was basically invented by these financial elites to help each other. No one can really hold the CIA accountable. Anytime that's ever happened, they've either been killed or there's been some sort of misinformation campaign like the church committee. Um, so what we have is, is basically uh, a rogue entity that maintains the hegemony of our country. Um, and it does horrible things. We've caught it trafficking children, trafficking drugs, killing people, torturing people, committing genocide. So how do we justify this? You know, I think it's important to understand that, that most of the terrible things like selling children, selling drugs that the CIA does or to any intelligence agency does, it's their bread and butter. It's because they need to finance themselves without the use of democratic means, right? They don't wanna to have to ask you for $50 billion so that they can behead 50 people and, you know, Burkina Faso. You know, that needs to be off the books. And what they figured out is that drugs not only are the best way to fund things, but they're the best way to infiltrate any country or any organization. Um, there's a great quote I'll read from uh, The Crimes of the President by Joel Bannerman, in which he lays this out better than I can, but I, I think it's a good summary of, of, of how the intelligence agencies operate. He says, exploiting the drug trade amplifies the operational capacity of covert operations for the CIA. When the CIA decides to enter a region to combat a communist force or country, the purpose is to seek out allies and assets which are effective and won't squeal. The, CIA, the CIA's allies' involvement with narcotics enhances their operational capacity because they are fully integrated into the household economies of the region and monopolize what is usually the largest cash crop in that country. Any group which controls such a lucrative trade commands extraordinary political power that is extremely useful to the CIA. Powerful drug lords can mobilize people to die. No amount of money in the world can buy this operational capacity. So, you know, on, on one hand, it's strategically, you know, maybe intelligent to be doing these things, but there's there's this there's this problem I think the intelligence agencies are running into where increasingly you know, we're realizing that what they do is, is quite evil, is quite bad, is unethical, and we don't want them to do it. But how are they still doing it? And how did they get here? I think Virilio makes a really good point here. And he says it when, you know, we have a global secular holy war, in which we consider it our duty to intervene where we need to intervene, right? And we consider it our duty to stop bad people from holding more power in the world. And so what we get is instead of the sort of Balkan fights, say between Serbia and Croatia, the ethnic cleansings, he calls it now the ethical cleansings. In other words, we feel it's justified to commit, you know, the same kinds of genocide and war crimes that a warlord would do against a people it doesn't like, if it means that we're getting rid of a people that we think is wrong, that we think is ethically wrong. And that can justify the total war that is necessary for the military industrial complex to constantly be fighting for its own self-interest, for its own financial interest, and also for the interest of the country. So I like this point of ethnic to ethical cleansing, 
because it really lays bare what's going on in the world, that this is not, you know, something better, that we're not, we're not doing something better than anyone else. We're not providing something, you know, moral, right? Or more moral than say the global East is. What we're providing is uh, a justified terror to maintain our own interest. And that's as simple as the situation gets. And so it, it really strips all the mystifications and propaganda that come with this global secular holy war of bringing democracy, of bringing human rights to other countries, and looks at it for what it is, a strategic, tactical foundation on which we act. Yeah, I think that um, in terms of this, it, it, it ties directly into, um, you know, going into, for example, like chapter two, where he starts talking more about um, the, the importance, like we were mentioning, of, of intelligence and of these like panoptical um, forms of not just like conflict, but forms of uh, like the, the dominion of like information, information and global positioning systems. So you've seen this with the development in China with, you know, their face tracking software and things of that nature. And mm -hmm. you've seen the United States move more and more into that as well, where they not only have dominion over the sky, they can, they can do pinpoint, um, you know, drone strikes and, and they're starting to even, I mean, this has been known for a while, but the surveillance in terms of surveilling just the average citizen China, there's more in common between the United States and China than people um, even like to admit. And, it, and that's purely because um, it goes back to the central thesis that Borrelio kind of has in mind, which is that stasis is um, death. And, and both the United States and both China have to kind of develop these um, truly, you know, what, what aptly Deleuze um, calls, you know, the societies of control. Um, it's this development of those societies of control that lead the states to have this absolutist, and it's not—it's not formal. You can't point to a particular. I mean, you can kind of vaguely point to the to the CIA, but it it strategically hides itself. It's this, you know, it's this whole notion of the deep state, and, and you know, the deep state seen as this conspiracy theory. But um, no, there, there's much more truth in terms of the deep state than than even people you know, people who are actually enthusiastic about conspiracy theories even even can comprehend about the, the deep state. There, there's more um, there's more there in terms of what um, these powers, these global powers are doing, not just in their own backyards, but in, in, in the in the world arena. Yeah, exactly. It's it's always important to know that the real power doesn't change with elections. It's always going to be what we call the deep state is simply those sort of you know bureaucrats and people who run the government who do it for their whole life and who will not you know be in and out with the presidents that, that you know have worked their way up the cia who control these things it's it's a real thing that i think it's mystified into this conspiratorial thing when it really should be a question of transparency and accountability right how much of the government that you know goes to war is accountable not very much of it and it's the same people who have been fighting the same wars for 60 years you know 
yeah, it's the whole notion of, you know, the, you know, it's what are the conflicts in the Middle East, if not just mon money laundering schemes. Um, right. And to the point that you mentioned that, you know, these people in power that have been, it's, you know, it's a true monarchy in the sense that it's these oligarchs that are just passing off, you know, it's the same people in power, it's the same couple of families that have been in power uh, historically in the United States who don't want to give up that power. Um, and you can't hold them accountable because, you know, it's, for example, people like to think that it's, you know, it's the Republicans or it's Democrats that are ruin ruining the United States when, mm -hmm. you know, someone, you know, like mentions Moldbug, you know, states that it's just they're, you know, it's like these as these two aesthetic colors. It's just it's the same sports sports team. It's just that they're wearing different jerseys um, and really all, what their what their sole purpose is, is for the 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 system the the ability to sustain the united states as a global power and it will do that by funding wars in the middle east by upholding you know it's it's like it's that you know that whole notion of uh just to kind of go off topic but it's that whole notion of you know why have why have neoconservatives um held up or propped up the state of israel if not you know you would think you would think that neoconservatives would be the last people to to, you know to help um, establish the state of Israel, but it's almost this hyper anti-Semitism that helps them do that. It's to prop up um, Israel to kind of legitimize it as a as a state, in so far as it recognizes um, the United States, and then by virtue of that, um, it's it's almost kind of saying like, well, we don't want. <laughs> in a way, it's 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 almost like that Zionist question, you know, the, why why Zionism was kind of uh, growing. Prior to, I think it was around 19, prior to 1933, Zionism was growing heavily in uh, Germany because, you know, it's, it's this whole notion of, well, these people don't want us here. Well, we can, we can legitimize our own state. Um, mm -hmm. And the United States has, in the last century or so, the latter half of the 20th century, it, it aptly did that for, for Israel. It legitimized it as a state. And now Israel itself is creating... Um, it itself is, in a way, a fa fascistic regime, which is completely mm -hmm. uh, doing things. Um, I'm trying to think of the word here. Um, you know, like human rights violations, essentially. Right. Yeah, they're still doing ethnic cleansings over there. They're not even ethical cleansings. <laughs> Israel's interesting in that way. It's, uh, yeah, it's it, the legitimacy of Israel is only legitimate so long as it coincides with the United States strategic interest. You know, we, there's a reason, you know, not a good one, but as it sh should have been, but there's a reason Israel isn't in Germany, you know, there's a reason it was in Palestine. And, you know, there are uh, religious arguments to be made of why it would be there, but the only reason it is there is because of the interest it serves to the the U.S. And, and you can see the the fear the U.S. has towards Africa and the Middle East is is always pretty paranoid. Uh, there was actually a the other day there was an uh, I think it was a Hillary Clinton email or some someone emailing Hillary Clinton that proved that uh, the United States under the Obama administration uh, killed Gaddafi um, because he was going to start a pan Africanist currency backed by Libyan gold and run through the dinar which would have completely changed the geopolitical landscape in Africa.
and given them a large degree of autonomy. And the U.S. said, no, 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 got him done, but then didn't have the strategic foresight to fill the void. So now China just owns Africa, you know, and it just goes to, to speak to what Virilio is talking about here, where while this is all strategy and highly thought out technical, you know, reasoning, it's most often wrong. It's failing. That's really the big mistake here is that the world's getting more chaotic, more dangerous, and the U.S. is slipping in its hegemony despite this, this you know, foolproof computer-reasoned strategy that, that continues to, to push global geopolitics. like to swim in the sea. What do you mean? I thought you'd already been through all of the underwater training courses. I'm asking about the ocean, not those damn pools. I feel fear. Cold. Alone. Sometimes down there I even feel hope. Hope, huh? In those deep dark waters? When I float weightless back to the surface, I imagine I'm becoming someone else. It's probably the decompression. You want to get out of Section 9, is that it? Pateau, <laughs> how much of your body is original? Hey, are you drunk or something? Easily remedied. Thanks to chemical implants in our bodies, we can break down the alcohol in seconds. No stupor, no hangover. We can just toss them back while waiting for orders. If man realizes technology is within reach, he achieves it. Like it's damn near instinctive. Look at us, for example. We're state-of-the-art. Controlled metabolisms, computer-enhanced brains, cybernetic bodies. Not long ago, this was science fiction. So what if we can't survive without regular high-level maintenance? Who are we to complain? I suppose an occasional tune-up is a small price to pay for all this. I'm afraid we've both signed our bodies and ghosts away to Section 9. True. If we ever quit or retire, we'd have to give back our augmented brains and cyborg bodies. There wouldn't be much left after that. There are countless ingredients that make up the human body and mind, like all the components that make up me as an individual with my own personality. Sure, I have a face and voice to distinguish myself from others, but my thoughts and memories are unique only to me, and I carry a sense of my own destiny. Each of those things are just a small part of it. I collect information to use in my own way. All of that blends to create a mixture that forms me and gives rise to my conscience. I feel confined, only free to expand myself within boundaries. Confinement? That's why you gamble swimming with a body that can sink like a rock? What the hell is it that you see at the bottom, in that darkness? What we see now is like a dim image in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. That was you, wasn't it? Yeah. 
Yeah, I think that um, you bring up that, you know, bringing up the point about um, these, you know, the, obviously the, the strategies that we've been talking about, but I, I think that you bring up China as a good example um, because, you know, it's what, what has China been doing except, um, you know, doing long-term time preference uh, as a mm-hmm. whole for its for its people if you if you take china what it's done since the 1980s um they've been really setting it up for the, the at least in terms of geopolitics they've been setting up for the for the long term and you can see the contrast mm-hmm. the, the stark contrast between uh power like china in contrast to what we've been seeing in what we've seen in recent new uh recent news um russia and the whole ukraine um aspect of it which is you've had a power that's been kind of cornered by the world hegemon to kind of do something as rash as, um, you know, trying to invade and, and take over Ukraine. Um, despite Ukraine, technically speaking, because of, because of, I would say it's underhanded backing by the West um, in terms of, it's not, this, it's not the same Ukraine that... Um, it's not the same Ukraine that was, um, you know, when they lost Crimea, for example. It's it's a completely mm. different uh, body, and a lot of that has to do with you know the propaganda that's out there. I, th- I think that there's a lot of uh, propaganda in terms of Ukraine, the Ukraine conflict, and and I think it'll be yeah, interesting how that. Yeah, <laughs> I think it'll be interesting to see how that pans out. But I think you're you're apt in saying that there's there's all these like underhanded schemes and there's a lot of tactics involved. And Borrelio kind of speaks about this in terms of his, his notion of technology is accompanied by accidents. Um, and he mm. mentions how, for example, the development of the train invented the train wreck or the derailment. Right. And in a lot of ways, yes, you, you, that's, that's incredibly um, important in our times because, you know, with the development of new technologies, you have what we mentioned at the beginning, which is this collateral damage you know we have these mishaps in terms of drone strikes but you also have these accidents in terms of geopolitical movements uh you know it's kind of these unwanted snowball effects that kind of uh cause entire regimes to collapse as as, as much as you think that they're they're strong they it's like that line um you know everything solid melts into air, and it's and it it's it's easy to kind of overstate their power, but it's just as much as they have that power, it's easily it can easily slip from their fingers. Yeah, and not to mention just the and when we're talking about telewar, uh, you know, immediate defeat is a real war defeat, and Virilio makes that point, especially if you think of the U.S. and Somalia. Um, you know, that one day that Black Hawk Down recounts where two helicopters and 17 people died and 100 got injured was enough to pull the entire UN delegation out of Somalia because of how bad of a media defeat it was. But there's also media victories. And, and reading this book took me back to one of my earliest memories of, um, I don't remember 9-11 too well. I just remember my parents telling me and being scared that, you know, we were under attack. But I don't have a good memory of that, but I do have a very good memory of watching TV um, the night of the bombing of Baghdad and just being horrified at watching this on television and asking my dad, like, why are they doing this? Because they were just bombing openly Baghdad. And I was like, aren't there people there? And my dad's like, oh, they're smoking out, you know, the insurgents so that we can get them. You know, that was like the 
but just watching for five hours the bombing of another person's capital was something that I'll never forget what it what it felt like in that in that moment to to see that and uh, it's important to understand that the the media is is sort of the new frontier of victory and defeat and it's it's the most important one since Vietnam uh, in these wars and so it's not to say that the U.S. does it more than anyone else, although you could argue they do, or that U.S. or Ukraine is right or wrong and Russia is right or wrong. Um, this is this is an understanding of the operational strategy of these countries. And for instance, Russia, when its uh, economy was in decline in around 2015, um, Putin's numbers were dropping and he authorized some pretty media heavy air raids in Syria just to show off Russian power, which, you know, raised his uh, poll numbers, you know, 10 to 15%. This is the new world we live in. This is not necessarily just the North Atlantic Alliance or the Russians or anyone else. What Farili is pointing out here is the acceleration together into a new world of global order, a new order of technological supremacy. And air power. I think it would be apt to go maybe just briefly do more about just InfoWars, the marriage between the telecommunication broadcasting, um, the marriage between that and the industrial military complex, um, mm-hmm. which is the way you mentioned, you know, how Putin's strategic bombing raised them up about like 10 to 15 um poll i mean points in the polls um and i think that's i mean that's just i mean propaganda has always worked this way in terms of mis misinformation and the the spread of um like trying to spread a message the fastest way that you can and that's that's really what it comes down to in terms of accelerationism it's the proliferation of you know information information contagion um, but I think that the, at the speed at which it's being done now, um, which is very in line with Baudrillard's um, writing in terms of, you know, the, the, the simulation or the simulacrum um, and in terms of hyperreality, I think that the, at the speeds at which it's being done now and at the, at, the, at the molecular levels too, for example, in terms of social media, algorithmic choice, uh, you know, the, the creation of um, atomized subjects in terms of uh, panoptic um, self-policing has really um, kind of sped this up to unprecedented levels. For example, um, essentially, if you're not, and you can say this is good or bad, um, but just it, it just is a fact of the reality that we live in. If you're not for Ukraine, you're starting to be kind of lumped in with you know, fascistic regimes or notions of, um, you know, of, um, you know, anti, you know, whatever you want to call it. Um, And then, you know, that has real, real effects in terms of what people think about politicians, what people are going to go into the polls um, with, the voting polls, and then what kind of leeway, you know, for example, the United States has in terms of um, getting involved in world politics, for example, you know the support for Ukraine. At the end of the day, it's going to be fronted as a humanitarian um, 
as a humanitarian position but it's at the end of the day it's just going to end up being another uh, weapons slash money laundering scheme that the united states is going to use to profit and this is something that everyone's known that you know weapons the proliferation of weapons of war has been one of the best ways to make money i mean that's the biggest lesson of world war ii is uh you know the centralization mobilization of economic resources to create weapons is one of the leading drivers for economic prosperity yeah and it creates quite a crazy world where you know israel's main economy is based on weapons manufacturing and it makes you know pretty advanced jets and uh you know there was a funny time in the 90s where uh the U.S. Uh, needed to sell some jets that it had bought, you know, that Israel had made, and it was selling it to Saudi Arabia, which was using it to help bomb <laughs> yep. Israel. And so Israel's like, hmm, okay, but you have to take out the extra fuel capacity so that they can't reach us, you know? And it's this crazy world where, you know, the the enemies are trading with each other and enriching each other while fighting, you know? And it it doesn't make a ton of sense outside of its own you know, military self-interest. Uh, I wanted to just, you know, kind of end too by talking about when we're talking about telewar and, you know, the propaganda of today, I think you can look no further than uh, Michael Aquino and his work. He was the head of psychological operations and the, the head of the Temple of Set, the Satanist uh, church uh, in San Francisco. He uh, wrote a, a paper for the PSYOPs, PSYWAR division, uh, entitled Mind War. And it's, it's really an incredible piece. And it tells you that if, if you want to understand sort of telewar and uh, the way information is being handled or events are being sort of uh, presented, then you should read, you know, high ceremonial magic, because that's what these people are reading and what these people are basing the ideas of psychological operations on. And so the idea of mind war is, is that he says, we are going to basically force everyone to believe that we're right. We're not going to lie, you know, or necessarily we're going to make our reality true. We are going to force our reality on other people, no matter its truth. We're going to make it true. And the main reason, or sorry, the main uh, operational way of doing that he recommends is by using the media because of how much of the media is owned and, uh, you know, accessible to the CIA or to, you know, psychological operations officers. The media offers the sort of uh, the room for ceremonial magic to take place. It offers the medium for which you can control information. And so when we're looking at the world today, we're looking at uh, the battle between two versions of reality of of information processing and of of truth itself being fought on the battleground of spectacle of the creation and maintenance of spectacles and so if we can understand the psychological strategy that you know the players in the game are using then it's helpful to be able to understand when those strategies are being deployed for your own uh to you know to to move you a certain direction to create a certain illusion in your mind the technical illusionism is only getting better with media and with that kind of power and it's only going to be pushed more and more by the people who have control over it so it's important to understand how you fit into that puzzle of how your 
you know, being sold a mind war. Yeah, I think that's a really good place to kind of just kind of wrap it up. But uh, just to kind of touch on that real quick, um, I just want to bring out, I think that there's a very stark um, position or dichotomy where a lot of people who are anti-establishment or call themselves leftist or whatever, there's this idea that you know, you can't use the tools of the state or you can't use the tools of, you know, essentially what's what it is. It's a psyop. Um, mm-hmm. Or you can't use these things. And, and there's this kind of reduction. In a way, it's almost like orthodox materialism in, in the Marxist sense is, you know, it's the it's it's the biggest psyop that we've had. This whole notion of uh, returning to fundamentals. And I think um, to be successful in this current environment, um, and that's where I'm kind of not advocating, but I, I do see a lot of potential in these decentralized groups in terms of using uh, cryptocurrency and all of these things. And it's like you, you can say what you want about them and just say that they're already integral and part already captured by the system. But it's how you mentioned it's not necessarily that you should buy their the propaganda and be like, well, it's Bitcoin, it's anti-establishment by definition. It's like, no, mm-hmm. let's assume that even if it is part of the establishment, how can you use, what are the conditions of, what are the conditions of possibility for insurrection? And that's where mm-hmm. I'm, I'm kind of like a, a staunch Kantian or even like Deleuzian, you know, it's like, um, you know, that's, that's where critical theory comes, comes into place. It's, it's like, what are the conditions for, insurre- what are the possible conditions for insurrection and how does that shape our tactics how does that shape our ideology and how does that shape the narratives which it's kind of like this point that we both converge on where what is the narrativization of the reality that we want to create how does that formulated um to create the necessary affects to really you know combat world hegemony yeah that's really well put to, to everyone out there, you're either psyoping or you're getting psyoped. No one's immune. So it's, it's good to understand which one's happening to you when and to work on your mimetic warfare and to work on your capacity for information manipulation for better or for what your own version of better is and to avoid having your whole life just be psyoped into believing whatever they want you to, they being whoever, you know, whatever side, psyops, by their nature are non-vital they're they're anti-vital they want you they want you to be docile or they want you to be whatever they want you to be so uh it's important to understand these things better if we're going to be real people if we're going to have some version of autonomy vitality and truth in the world i agree well Thanks for everyone that's still listening and um, we'll have definitely more episodes coming up Uh, to everyone who's uh, subscribed to the Patreon. Thank you. We do appreciate it. And um, you guys really do help out fund the podcast and hopefully we'll be able to continue to churn these out uh, on a monthly basis. And there's been some changes to the, to the tiers and things. So if you've missed all that, make sure that you're subscribed to um, our Twitter at decode underscore cast. One, one.